Hey, Peacenicks. Today's guest is Shoshana V. Aronowitz. She is assistant professor at the Department of Family and Community Health, the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. She worked as a methadone RN, does work in harm reduction, drugs, and criminal injustice system, as she wrote on her Twitter. And I like that. It is a criminal injustice system. So I'd like to thank her so much for coming on the podcast. We covered a lot of ground, talked about a lot of very important issues. So we're just going to dive right into this one. Again, thanks for listening. Here is Shoshana V. Aronowitz. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. All right. So Shoshana, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. And where are you where are you at right now? Where are you joining me from? I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're the South Philadelphia to South be exact. Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And you're the assistant professor um, Department of Family and Community Health at the University of Pennsylvania. Yep, that's right. All right, great. So I, yeah, I found you on Twitter and um you talk about harm reduction and stuff like that. You do a lot of retweets about stuff like that. And you've also um done work. I read it as a methadone, RN in a methadone clinic. Sure. Yeah. Um, my first job um, when I became a nurse was at a methadone um, and buprenorphine clinic. Although primarily when I was there, most folks are receiving methadone in Burlington, Vermont. Um, so that's that was my first clinical job in the um, substance use disorder treatment space. Gotcha. And you hadn't had any previous like personal history with addiction or anything that was just kind of a job you took? Um, I have had, I have some, um, close friends and family members and personal connections to, um, people who use drugs and people with substance use disorders, but this was my first, um, like paid clinical gig. Yeah. Gotcha. So that, is this where you first really kind of saw what was going on with the, with, you know, the negative side of, of the impact of prohibition and stuff, or, you know, when did that, you start realizing these things? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, prior to that job, I had served for, um, I think about five years on a restorative justice board in Burlington, Vermont, um, as a volunteer, I think I said that. And interestingly, that was actually something when I applied for this methadone clinic job that, um, one of the physicians at the clinic, like was very interested in was that experience. Um, so I was thinking a lot about, um, the negative impacts of prohibition and how we approach substance use and substance use disorders um, from like legal and punitive perspectives before this job. But I think this job, what this job really um, helped me see was that even in an environment that is, you know, on its face meant to be like a quote unquote, like treatment or like healthcare environment that those like punitive politics um, and logics extend in those spaces too, that like there is so much overlap, I think with the like law enforcement approach to substance use disorders, even in treatment settings that like, I really, that really opened my eyes to that piece of it. Yeah. um, That reminds me of something you posted today or was today or yesterday that was about, um, 
said that the police were actually influencing the the methadone clinics or something. I wrote it down here. Um, oh, it was uh, eight, eight, uh, the the people that worked, the nurses and uh, medical staff at methadone clinics were used as agents of surveillance. Oh, was that, was that the yeah, case that's actually a piece I wrote. That um, isn't a new tweet, but I think it's probably at the top of my Twitter profile. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a piece exactly. I wrote. Yeah for Filter um, magazine about the roles of nurses, at least from my experience in methadone clinics um, specifically, but in, in other, I think, environments as well, where nurses can kind of be used as like agents of like rule enforcement and surveillance, definitely surveillance, um, which is kind of a manipulation, I think, of what our roles could be at their best, which is like monitoring people to make sure that they're doing okay and having close, you know, kind of closely watching people to see how they're doing that can like very easily, I think, turn into surveillance in many settings, but certainly in my experience in methadone care um, that can happen. So nurses are kind of, because like in many other settings, nurses often have like, you know, a lot of direct patient, um, care, like they maybe spend a lot of time with patients or are like seeing, seeing patients a lot, certainly in hospitals, but like in methadone clinics too, like the nurses are doing the dosing. So they're seeing folks really frequently. They can be looked to by like other staff at clinics for, um, you know, for input, um, about how someone's doing, but not always in, in like, you know, a helpful way. Like, I guess an example might be, I remember being approached by um, other clinic staff. I think in a lot of cases, it was like counselors or um, therapists about, about patients or clients, you know, the therapist saying like, I, you know, I just have this like inkling that this person is using, but for whatever reason, you know, like, I, I don't have any, like, I'm using air quotes, like evidence of that, but like, do you, do they look intoxicated to you when they like come to the window for dosing or something? So, um, you know, I think people sometimes look to nurses to like be, to, to be seeing those things and then asking them for, you know, this, this evidence or this, um, information, which I think can be obviously used, um, against patients or not really to, to help them. Yeah. So, so when you said surveillance though, you're not talking about like working with the police and giving out addresses for anybody. No, in this case, I'm really talking about like literally just because you're spending so much time with people and watching them and seeing them that, um, that you are kind of can be the quote unquote eyes of like whatever clinic or in a lot of cases it's hospitals. Certainly this happens in hospitals too, um, and provide information or be asked to provide information about patients to other healthcare providers. Um, so I don't mean like, yeah, I don't, I don't mean in this case, like directly working with law enforcement, but it's almost like, um, the version kind of, of surveillance or law enforcement, like in a healthcare setting, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you see somebody that, is that the coming to the methadone clinic and they look like they're intoxicated? Do you, what, what, what is the protocol there? Just drug test immediately or something like that? Yeah, I think it would definitely depend on the clinic. I mean, in, in, you know, the methadone clinic that I worked at and in lots of other clinics as well, um, the way that, um, urine drug screening works, unfortunately, is that they are observed screened. So someone is literally watched like while they're, 
um, peeing, like talk about surveillance, right? Like, um, and so that is usually used, I think, as a strategy to assess, you know, like if we, if someone, if, if someone might be using, um, so I think it would really depend on the clinic, like what the next steps would be. But, I, you know, at, at my clinic, like one of the things that we were told to do, the nurses were told to do is like, if we thought that someone like seemed intoxicated or something that we were supposed to like literally do like an assessment, um, kind of like what you might do if you're pulled over and like a cop thinks that you are intoxicated and driving. Um, so that's something that I know was like part of the um the protocol and I've been, I haven't worked there in a while. So things yeah. might be different. And I also want to like very clearly state that these are rules that because of the way that methadone clinics are regulated in the U S individual clinics often have like very little leeway in terms of like how they can provide their services. Like it's very regulated. So unlike with, with buprenorphine clinics where, um, you know, different clinicians and different programs can take more of like a harm reduction or low barrier approach. Methadone clinics have less leeway because they're so tightly regulated. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's not the, um, the clinic that you work for. It wasn't rules that they created. These are just rules that the guidelines they have to follow to run, to operate in the United States. Certainly. Yeah. And like different States have different, um, you know, there's like the federal guidelines and then there's like some States are even stricter and some States are a little more lenient. Um, but again, it's not a lot of it, certainly some of it, but a, a lot of it really is up to, is not really up to clinics. Like clinics can't decide like, Oh, we want to offer our services in this like radically different way. And we don't want to do urine drug screener or we don't want to do like, there's, there's way less room for like any sort of creativity yeah, because like the, first, yeah, the first thing I would do to be creative is offer other drugs than um, the ones they're offering. Because I think in Canada, they've tried hydromorphone. Mm-hmm. It seems to work better. Heroin works better. Um, but for some people, methadone, I'm sure it works. Did, what, what was the percentage of people that would come in with a heroin addiction that were successful at switching and didn't have problems with relapse? Yeah. You know, it's really hard for me to say because as this was, first of all, many, many years ago that I worked at this clinic and also as a like part-time nurse, I didn't have access to like clinic-wide data. Um, but I can say from my like kind of general experience, there were certainly like a lot of folks who did, um, very well by the kind of like, um, outcomes that, that like these clinics typically measure, which is like, you know, people can argue about whether these are the most important outcomes or not, but just like what they're looking for is like abstinence from like substances, you know, and like things that we like, and I'm going to put this in air quotes again, like things that, that people in the treatment world often refer to as like stability indicators. And I'm saying this in air quotes because it's super subjective. There's no like clear Mm -hmm. guideline about like what stability means, but I think it's a term used all the time in substance use disorder treatment to refer to how patients are doing. And so it's often a combination of like sometimes abstinence from substances and employment and kind of like how, how people are doing with like family life or like social supports or whatever, all kinds of things. Um, so from those measures are certainly like lots of people who are like meeting all of those, um, whether or not those were like these patients goals often is not really something that the clinic necessarily cares about. It's just like, this is what we think you need to do to like be quote unquote better. Um, but there's certainly people who like struggled and methadone was not like 
this perfect like magic medication for lots of people for a variety of reasons. So there were folks kind of across the spectrum of like um, how they were doing from this like kind of treatment perspective and also how maybe they might say they were doing regardless of how it it looked on paper. Yeah. And and what is the purpose for methadone over other drugs? Is it just the half-life is so long that they can do one in the morning or? Yeah, there's a variety of things. I mean, I think a lot of it is tied up in like stigma about, about substances. Um, because like, as you said, there's lots of people who, you know, might do way better on like heroin assisted treatment. Um, but that's not available in the U S um, right now, I think a lot of it has to do with like stigma and prohibition and like kind of ideas about like what these substances are. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think one of the arguments that people will give for why methadone is, is like, you know, something we're allowed to prescribe for opioid use disorder is partially this half-life thing. Um, certainly, you know, that, that makes it so that for lots of people, they don't need, I mean, some people do, but lots of people don't need to have like multiple doses a day, which like for some people is like helpful because they Mm -hmm. don't have to worry about taking a medication multiple times a day. I mean, one thing that, um, you know, and, and people might all know this, but when methadone is also used as a medication for pain, but when used for pain, it's usually given as a pill, but when used for opioid use disorder treatment, it can only be given as a liquid. Like you cannot prescribe the pill, um, for opioid use disorder treatment It has to be liquid. And that is because, um, I, you know, just a lot of like ideas about like diversion and how, like, if you, if it's a liquid, it can be like harder to divert and you can like watch someone swallow it in the clinic, which is a thing that happens like in clinics is like people come in and they literally stand like in front of a nurse and there's like mirrors. And again, with the surveillance stuff, um, people have to like take their dose and swallow it and then like open their mouth and lift their tongue to show like, it's gone. I swallowed it. Um, and when you get take-homes, they're in these like little take-home bottles labeled and like blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine like this liquid would be, um, I mean, of course people end up doing all kinds of different things because people do what they need to do. Um, Mm. but it, it certainly like in a pill format could be a lot easier for people a to like you know, bring with them places, which is great. I mean, for, from like a patient centered perspective, but I think from like a punitive slash kind of like controlled, like it's really important that we control people and how they take these medications liquid. I think, um, people think it's like harder to divert. Yeah. So So that's why, yeah. What's the purpose of if, if say somebody comes in there and they take a pill, they hide it under their tongue. Like, why did, why would you care if they did like, why would you, why do they have to take it right then if they waited an hour? Is it because like, what's the purpose for that? So I think the idea is to make sure that someone is actually taking it and not selling it all or giving it all to somebody else or something like that. And I mean, I think there's lots to be said, and I'm saying this like, again, from the perspective of like it being a highly controlled medication, I think that is the, um, that's the idea that like people with opioid use disorder in this like treatment world, I think are often like what the, the sort of like prevailing attitude is like folks can't be trusted, you know? And like, and again, not my perspective, but this is like how it's framed. And so you always have to be thinking about how might people might be doing something um, that you don't want them to do. And how can we like avoid that? Um, 
you know, I mean, you think about other medications that you might get prescribed like an antibiotic or something, and it's in a pill form and you go to the pharmacy and you pick it up and you go home. And like, maybe your prescriber tells you like, take this two times a day for five days or whatever. But ultimately, like you might not do that. You might like throw it away. You might forget to take it. You might give it to a friend and there, no one is really necessarily doing anything to keep you from doing that. But when it comes to methadone, it's like, we need to do everything we can um, to make sure that people are taking it in this way that we've decided is okay, regardless of whether it really works for them or not. I gotcha. I gotcha. Now, mm-hmm. is the liquid that you said legally has to be liquid? Is that was that just in Vermont or is that a federal thing? Do you know? That's a federal thing. Yeah. Because yeah, when I was young, the first time I ever heard of methadone, when I was young, um, I, I liked painkillers, and one of the ones that we would get was methadone, but it was pill mm-hmm. form. So, is, mm-hmm. is, is that like from the hospitals actually used for pain? So that would have been for pain. Yeah. Really? So and it can be prescribed. Like if you have like a pain care provider or a primary care provider who's treating your pain, they, they could prescribe pills. And that could be something that you like pick up at a pharmacy. But if you have a diagnosis of opioid use disorder, then you need in the United States, as of now, you need to be treated for that. If you want methadone, buprenorphine is a separate situation. If you want, or what you're offered is methadone, you have to go to a a place, a specific place, which is called an OTP or outpatient treatment center. Um, and our outpatient treatment program and get methadone, which will be in liquid form from there. And there's like very specific rules about how many take-homes you can get and how long it will take for you to get those take-homes and all this stuff. But if you have a pain condition and someone decides to prescribe you methadone, it'll be in pill form and you could like pick it up at your pharmacy. Gotcha. And is it, is it any safer than heroin? Cause I mean, I, I know it can kill you. Now the heroin on the streets now with fentanyl is different, but, it, but as far as pure heroin versus methadone, if you know, if they're prescribed by a doctor and the dose is regulated, is it any safer or healthier methadone versus heroin? I mean, I think we, and, and I, I'm sure you like know this, the way we think about these substances kind of like both in kind of popular culture. And I think also in like this, you know, healthcare environments are not immune from this is like, we like to, for whatever reason, like imbue this, like moral, um, like we we like to basically look, we like to be able to say like, this substance is kind of just like evil. It's bad. It's so dangerous. Like fentanyl is that right now, you know? And so there's, it's just like so much focus on the substance itself and not on all these other factors. And I think like heroin is a similar thing. Like even when people like trained professionals, like know that heroin is so, so similar to like all these other opioids that we prescribe it, it is like, it, it can escape kind of this label that it's been given that it's like so uniquely like dangerous or, or scary or mm-hmm. whatever, which isn't actually true. And so I think with both methadone, methadone and heroin, like people, different people are going to respond differently to them. Different people will find, you know, one helpful and not the other. Um, you can overdose on either one, depending on the dose and all these different kinds of things. So it's really not at the end of the day, like necessarily a safety or at least not like primarily really, I think a safety thing as much as it is like the, there's so much stigma and, and misinformation and kind of even people with like a lot of knowledge about this have, have internalized some of that. So that's how we've gotten where we are, where we're prescribing methadone and not heroin in the U S. Um, but 
clearly, especially if we look at like experiences from other countries that do prescribe heroin assisted treatment, like we see it can be like very helpful for people. And also some people can overdose on methadone. So it's not like, you yeah, know, that's so much safer. Somebody in my high school died from methadone overdose. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about something you said when you were talking about, you know, people don't realize how close heroin is to some other things like oxycodone, stuff like that. It's similar. But w- what it is, is when when they want to demonize oxycodone, then they'll bring up how similar mm-hmm. it is, but they do it not in yeah. a way like, well, heroin's not much different than oxycodone. They say, well, right. oxycodone is <laughs> not much different than heroin. So they uh-huh. use it as, yeah, so it's, that's when they link them together when they want to put something in a bad corner. Totally, totally, totally. Um, yeah, I was actually watching Bill Maher. I don't know if you ever watched Bill Maher. He's on HBO. Yeah, no, I think I saw a tweet that I think you tweeted. About I did that tweet. Recently. It was yeah, so yeah. it just bothered me so much because so many people watch that and they, and like you said, when they hear heroin, they immediately are going to agree with them. And he's like, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed if you use heroin. And he's just like, you should be shamed. He's like, heroin? Are you serious? And it's like, um, so many people hear that and completely agree with them because they don't know any of the mm-hmm. facts. And it's, it sucks when the people doing the show, the news show, even though it's a comedy show, it's still people get their news from it. They, you know, the, the, the people doing talking about it knew nothing about it, didn't understand yeah. harm reduction. It just really bothered me. And a lot of people's opinions are formed by the television they watch and the shows that they watch. Yep. Yep. And social media, certainly. Definitely in social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, because a, a lot of people I've talked to who have been in the methadone clinics, I hear them say this all the time that the methadone withdrawal was worse than the heroin. And that might just be because they don't remember the heroin, right. Or they switched to methadone or something, but have you heard that? Or do you know anything about that? Yeah. I mean, I've heard that. And I think like what I've learned um, from my experiences and like what I've, you know, what people have shared with me is like people have like wildly different experiences and it's hard you know, I think it's important to like educate people when you're prescribing something and like provide as much information as you can, but also know that like different people are going to have different experiences. And when someone says like, this was a horrible withdrawal or, you know, whatever, um, even if that doesn't match up with like what you've been taught or like what other people experience, like, you know, that was true for them and that's valid. So I have heard that. I mean, I think partially it could be because of longer half-life stuff. It could be, I mean, it could be like a variety of factors, but I think regardless of what it is, like it, that's what happened for people. Um, and I think that is, you know, like a really, if, if what we want is to make it so that folks who want treatment with medications, um, you know, feel good about accessing it, then I think we need to make people feel confident that like, we will do whatever we can to like manage withdrawal symptoms and also like set up our system so that people are at like the lowest risk possible of like missing doses or going through these, these situations where they can't get their medication. And I mean, I think our system right now, especially with methadone is not like that in any way. And I think a lot of people have these horrible experiences where they like, were doing okay on the medication and then missed some doses because they couldn't get to the clinic because the hours the clinic was open or, or the appointment times just didn't work with their schedule or they have to travel long distances, like whatever happens, they miss doses and then they feel horrible. And then they start to think like, maybe it's not worth it for me to start this again, because I don't want to go through this again, which is completely reasonable. Um, but it's, it's like really 
shitty if like they did well on it and like they could do well on it again, but they're like, I don't want to go through this. Like I said, then that's a systems failure. Like we failed to make sure that like someone could get the medication when they needed it. So I guess I went off on a little tangent, but no, no, that's, that's good. I, yeah. I had a, all I had... that to say that we like need as like clinicians to be like listening to people when they say that and figure out how to like address it. Yeah. I had a friend that, um, started dating this girl who was, uh, had been a heroin addict. And he said that he had to take her to the uh, clinic at like eight in the morning or something. Oh, yeah. She had to be there super early and they woke up late one morning. So he's, so she asked him to take him down, take him down the street to get something different because uh-huh. it's the methadone. So she'll go to the get yeah. heroin. And it just doesn't make sense why, why they have these weird rules. And also like when you said, if you, if you suspected somebody that might, might be intoxicated, say you do find out that they were on drugs. What is, what is the punishment for that? Is it just, it takes longer to get the take homes or yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really depends. And, and I don't remember all of the rules and regulations perfectly, but certainly like if you, from what I remember from the clinic I worked at, um, you know, if you had a certain number of take-homes and then you, um, did it like a UDS and it was, there were other substances in there. It could mean that you like lose your take-homes. It could mean that you have to like, you know, like come every day for a while if it isn't the first time it's happened, like it could eventually mean that you're like actually kicked out of the program, like all these different things, but there's certainly like these punitive consequences for it. Um, rather than like, you know, a conversation about like what's going on and like, can we help you with this? Um, so yes, I think a lot of the, the like punitive approaches, like all they do is function to like push people away, you know? Um, And I think that is rooted in this belief um, or sort of framework, whether it's conscious on the part of treatment providers or not, that like the clinic and the providers should have kind of this ultimate control and that like patients should do exactly as they're told. And if they don't, then like there's punishment. Um, Again, not to say that people I think consciously think this, but I think that's the way like the system is set up. Um, That is the framework that it's in. Got you. Yeah. And they do kind of, like, there's a thing going on, especially with, within the world of opiates where they treat people like, like kids. And, and the biggest thing is, um, you know, the drug seeking behaviors, they have to look for that. Mm-hmm. Like just last week I had this really painful gout attack and I haven't had it in years, oh. but I got COVID and it just happened to come up right after that. Oh, God. Uh, so I don't know if it's related, but it was maybe just from eating bad and not, you know, anyway, really painful. So I called the doctor to ask for if I can get a tramadol prescription. Cause years ago when I got it, that's what they gave me. And they were just like, no, we're not giving you that, but we give you the medicine that'll get rid of the gout. So I just had an extremely painful weekend of walking mm-hmm. on it. And, um, and it's just, to me, it's like tramadol. I, I don't, it's such a, one of the more mild ones. And I, I didn't, it just, I felt like a little kid, like, can I have the tramadol? No, you can't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, it's like, what am I going to start doing heroin on the streets immediately if you give me tramadol? But that's this, this culture. And a lot of people with way worse pain than I've had are being taken off their pain medicines for the same reason. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you, I think we learned nothing from Oxycontin problem when they took everybody's Oxycontin prescriptions away. And that's where people are, have went to the streets in, in record numbers is they don't have access to safe supply anymore. And while Oxycontin was killing people. It's not killed nearly the same amount of people that we have now. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think one thing that I just thought of when you were telling that story, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this by any means, but something you'll see, which is so fascinating and like also very infuriating, is that, you know, in lots of ways, we, for other conditions, 
or other situations, we value people kind of like, or, you know, in healthcare settings, like advocating on behalf of themselves. You know what I mean? Like people knowing about their conditions and being able to say like this medication, I know about this medication and it helps. And I've tried this one and it doesn't. And like, that's generally, I mean, not in every case, but it's generally thought to be like a positive thing to like know about whatever health condition you have and be knowledgeable. But when it comes to controlled substances and like opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders, I think too, this whole thing about drug seeking is that like, if people seem to know too much or to ask for things directly or know what works for them and know what doesn't, that's like seen as a red flag rather than like, oh, you know, in your case, like he's had this before, like he knows what worked for him. And he's saying like, this helped, um, that instead it's like, oh, you know, like, why would he ask for that? Unless it was for some like nefarious purpose or whatever. Um, so I think it's this like double standard that applies to people with pain or, you know, with opioid use disorder, when like people kind of know what will help them, um, they're, it's very suspicious or it's like viewed suspiciously. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't have asked it for it by name. Like, how does it? Well, I mean, that's not. You were just, you know, you knew about the medication because it helped before. Um, that shouldn't be like a red flag. No, it shouldn't. But but like I said, because it's opiates, it is. Like, if somebody goes in and says, "You know what? My back pain's working really well on this Vicodin," and they immediately get like, "Is that because it really is working, or because these this person just loves Vicodin?" And now they're kind of treating everybody as if they probably just like Vicodin. They're probably just an addict. And even if they aren't, they'd be better off doing yoga. Or something like that. And right. don't get me wrong. Some people would be better off with yoga. Not everybody needs to rely on the pain medicine, I don't think. But some people really do need it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it should be up to the patient to decide this. And to the, between the patient and the doctor, at least. But the yeah. doctor has to worry about everything else now. Like getting in trouble. And- sure. And I think also, like, not to mention that, like, we have totally um, divested from, like, other, like, non- non-pharmacologic interventions like there's evidence that things like acupuncture and of course like physical therapy and like yoga and all these things can be helpful for lots of people not everybody but some people but it's so hard to access them and like people can't get it or it's too expensive and so to say like you know I don't think you should have this um prescription but you should go you know find a mindfulness practitioner or something it's people are like where do I find that like what are you talking about so it's kind of this double whammy of like people not getting the care they need. And in lots of cases that is medication that works for them and being told to do something else that they have no idea how they can access or they just can't afford or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's like the duketamine treatment that's supposed to be mm. the wonders for, for depression. I went and talked to one of the clinics um, and uh, yeah, it's $4,000. Um, yeah. And it's like, okay, do I want to, is my depression bad enough to spend $4,000? Is that going to make me more depressed? I don't know. But for a lot of people, if you have the money, it might, I've heard great stories, but for a lot of people, that's just not an option. They, there's no yeah. way that they can have that. And a lot of people's depression is what's keeping them from be, being able to have 4,000 in their savings account. They're not doing well in their life. They're, they're right. suffering. Right. And right. So yeah, we have to figure these, these things out, which hopefully over time they will become more, cause it's still a new kind of in its trial stages. So hopefully that'll change a little bit, but, um, what was one other thing I was going to, oh, I was going to ask you, cause I was talking with, I don't know if you know, Ben Boyce, he wrote the book, Dr. Junkie. Um, mm, but mm-hmm. I had him on my podcast and he was talking about, he, he believes that the CDC's numbers of a hundred thousand deaths are, um, are exaggerated. Um, mm. 
and um, his reasons were just because he says that anybody with opioids who died, they immediately attribute it to that. Mm. But I could also argue that they could be under, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there, could, there could be even more of people that were messed up maybe on opiate and gotten, I don't know, just there could be either way. But what, what are your thoughts? Do you think a hundred thousand is a bit of exaggeration in 12 months or? I mean, I don't really have, you know, I can't really speak to that exactly what I can say and what I like think people, you know, across the U.S. know is that there's lots of people overdosing because of the the toxic street supply. Like we know that's true because we're like seeing it in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so it almost kind of feels like the numbers, obviously the numbers are important and we like, you would hope that they would be accurate, but I think it's, it's not like we're hearing about these numbers, but not knowing anyone who's overdosed. Like we know that it's happening and it's happening right. a lot and it's happening to lots of people. And so that I think should be enough to know that we like need to, to be doing everything we can to like create safer situations um, and prevent overdose. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, certainly whether like those numbers are like completely accurate or not, like it is clear that we have a situation where the street supply is incredibly unpredictable and people and like, and you know, and this is caused by prohibition and that people are dying because of it. And that we could save their lives if they would just change the prohibition laws and allow mm-hmm. addicts safer, a safe supply. And even other things are helping like the harm reduction sites do help. We need to do more. We need safe supply, but still, if people had to go in there, get a you know, nurse on duty with naloxone, and, mm-hmm. um, but, um, a lot of places won't even allow it because people like people don't want it in their neighborhoods. They're like, where's it yep. going to be? They don't realize that it's going to clean up their parks and clean up their streets. And that it's not going to be a, like a place where criminals hang out. Like they, people have this idea that addicts are all criminals and things like that. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a ton of stigma, a lot of like nimbyism. I think the other piece of this that a lot of people don't always think about is that, um, you know, what people will say is like, we just need more treatment. And like, I agree that like treatment, evidence-based treatment should be more accessible and like available for everyone who wants it. But a lot of people who are dying, like wouldn't qualify for treatment because they don't have a substance use disorder. Like they use occasionally and like bought a pill that they thought was one thing and it was another thing and they died. Mm -hmm. And like, they would not be a person who would be served by more treatment. Like they don't, right. you know what I mean? Like that's not, that is just a straight up like toxic supply issue. Um, and I think a lot of people who like advocate for more treatment are not thinking about all of these people in their lives necessarily who like, you know, it's just like a, it's just a one-off one-time thing. Not that they should be more concerned about those people than people with substance use disorders. But I think it's um and not fully understanding the like depth of the issue that like you could someone could not have any sort of addiction or use disorder or whatever and still we're all you know like at risk um when like the drug supply is toxic so that i guess is just an argument for why like treatment alone is not going to fix it exactly anybody right now who's willing to buy street drugs is at risk and a lot and some of it's it's not just opiates if you're some people like to do cocaine occasionally or people like to do ecstasy um they're having more deaths at raves again because there's fentanyl in the ecstasy and mm-hmm. the ecstasy mdma the drug that they're wanting to buy is not lethal i mean I, there's, there are exceptions to that, I'm sure, with MDMA because it, it can be bad on the heart. But for most people, it's very safe, but not when you buy it on the streets. And like you're saying, these are not people that would qualify for help. These are people that want to dance and have fun and enjoy right. ecstasy. Um, 
you know, I, I, it's hard to say what we do because like you said, like Tom Petty and Prince were two good examples. They, these are guys that were not drug addicts at their age. They were on tour. They were in pain. They did not have a prescription to pain medicine. And they asked their fans, Tom Petty asked his fans after the show, does anybody have any pain medicine? And somebody gave him what looked like a Vicodin that he'd taken mm-hmm. all his life, but it wasn't, it was fentanyl. And he, and he, now we lost Tom Petty. So, and like you said, that, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing happen. So the only way to stop people from dying from the street drugs is if everybody were to just say, we won't, we won't use them anymore. And that's just clearly not an option. People are going to keep using no. them. Yeah. We know that that kind of just say no thing obviously doesn't work. Um, and I think, I mean, I just to highlight your point even further, like I've had situations with like friends and patients of mine who, you know, even know like, oh, the street drug supply is really, um, unpredictable. And so they like, in, in some cases it's like a benzodiazepine or Adderall, like seeking, seeking it out from a friend who has a prescription. In one case, someone I know like had a friend who had a prescription for benzodiazepine and took one. And it actually, even though it looked just like the benzo, it was press fentanyl. And it turned out that this friend like did have a prescription, but gave her one that she had bought. So it's like, even when you're like trying to be careful, like it, it, it can happen. Um, so yeah, just to further highlight that this is like a really widespread and like serious pernicious issue with the supply, um, that really just like warrants safe supply, um, along with other, like, I think, like I said, more treatment access, um, that is non-punitive and like patient-centered also important, but that's not going to fix it. I know. And that's what makes it makes me so mad about the whole thing is that we do have around 100,000 people in 12 months die. Right. So according to the CDC, so like, I mean, we have a solution. Like what we're talking about is a a solution to stop this immediately. Switzerland has got their overdose tests down to almost zero. So we know what the solution is, but because of our political system and how everything runs in this country, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And, you know, I always think about that commercial when they were trying to convince people to stop smoking cigarettes, they had those truth commercials and they had all the body bags that they lined up at the Mm -hmm. back of headquarters. I was like, we need to do that with, at the, you know, at the, uh, at the Capitol say, here's, here's what's going on or at the DEA's headquarters. Like, this is because of drug enforcement and prohibition. That's why all these bodies, I, I mean, it's, and that brings me to the next question is what can we do actually? Because right now, the only thing I do is vote for who I think might help. And I write my senators, I write my congressmen, but there's gotta be more that we can do to try to change people's perspective. Do you have any advice on on things people could do? And my listeners or myself? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Like I don't have, I think any extra wisdom that you don't. And I think the things you said are certainly important. I find that like what often ends up being most satisfying and maybe like um, most impactful actually is like doing things at like a hyper local level. So like I um, am a member of like a grassroots harm reduction group here in Philly and we do like weekly outreach people who use drugs and um, advocacy work and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I think you can sometimes really feel like you can have some sort of impact or at least even like handle on what's going on. Um, if you, if you work and do this stuff, like where you are, because I think thinking nationally is incredibly important, but very overwhelming and like very disheartening. Like you said, like it can kind of feel like, what can we do? And I think this is what people say sort of about like local politics in general is that, um, not only might you be able to like 
really feel like you're doing something important in your community, you like know your, or hopefully like someone understands their like local context better than they would understand another places. And so, you know, there's different things that will work better in different places. And like, if you really like plug into what's going on in your area and like in this case, get involved in like harm reduction groups where you are, I think you can like, um, make an impact and also like learn a lot more about like what's going on in your space. So that's, I think what I would recommend because I do feel like just, you know, thinking that your only hope is just to vote feels voting, you know, voting is important, but like, as we've seen, it can only get us so far a lot of the time and can feel, you know, just like not enough. And I don't think it is enough. Yeah, and I know, and I'm tired of getting those response letters from my congressman that just say, we we understand your concerns. We don't believe in marijuana re, uh, legalization <laughs> because it's not safe and it gives kids the wrong, like just the same old crap. But yeah. I, that, yeah, I actually am in uh, contact with a local harm reduction group here. So I'm hoping to um, be able to do some work with them and that's going to be great. And I do think that's great advice, um, you know, that I've been, I try to talk to my people, uh, my listeners about, I got uh, with some, um, new liberal progressives that are, that I want to try to start talking to do meetings with and see, see what's going on in my, my area. And it was funny because I had similar advice someone gave me right before I got COVID and I had a, a meeting I was supposed to go to and then I had COVID and then this mm, and that. Yeah. So it's like, but, but yes, thank you so much for doing this podcast before I let you go. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to add to the conversation? Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. I really thank you for like having me on and asking such great questions. And, um, you know, certainly people who have like specific questions, especially like people interested in like nursing and nursing's role in harm reduction should feel free to reach out to me and you can, you know, post my email address when you post this if you want. Um, but something I feel really like passionate about is improving nursing care um, for people who use drugs. And I think there's a lot we can do, what nurses can do to improve our care and make spaces feel safer and like more welcoming for people who use drugs. So always happy to talk about that with anyone who's interested. Well, I'm so happy that you came on and talked with me about it. Thanks so much. Uh, Yep. Good to meet you. You too. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing here at the Peace on Drugs podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Peace on Drugs podcast. And subscribe to our newsletter at www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe. And as always, we're going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. So peace out. You pay for what you can't. You pay for what you can't when you align yourself with the full PM jet set.
Yeah. 